Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Uh, but uh, anyway, Cindy Jordan on the Rider Flex podcast. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Steve. Are you in Arizona? I am. Um, okay. I live in Tucson and it, it is a wonderful time of year, except for like today, it, you know, in the morning it was 29. And so that's very, very unusual, but we'll mm. get, you know, we'll get up into the mid sixties. That's what's kind of great about the desert. It always has that dramatic swing. Yes. I've been to Tucson uh, many times. I know that area pretty well. I uh, looked at some property down there at one point. Uh, what was the name of it? It was, it was, um, east of tucson no wait 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 no no north oh, shit i can't remember but anyway east of tucson somewhere one of those small little desert towns where you could still grab something you know at a fairly decent price that wasn't you know uh overpriced yet uh kind of looked around but uh, my wife was she she's like no no <laughs> <laughs> well that, that ends the discussion right there <laughs> uh, but but tucson's cool how'd you get there I, you know, it's, I've had a really eclectic career, but um, I pretty much lived and grew up my whole life on the East Coast and settled in the DC area when I was in middle school. And okay. so um, my first job out of college, I was actually a police officer in the DC area. And oh, cool. I have, I have a lot to say about that job, you know. Wow. That's a whole episode. We could do like a whole episode just on that. <laughs> you really could. <laughs> Paramilitary is not my thing. It was, you know, like, but, um, what I learned, you know, at 21 driving around in a cruiser and carrying a gun was that there, you, I learned a lot about emotional intelligence, right? Like my entire existence was to deescalate and like get to the sort of the core of where it's supposed to be and move on because I certainly didn't want to get into any kind of altercation out there. So, um, so I did that for like five years and then started leveraging my degree in politics. My degree was in, uh, yeah. yeah, and did some fundraising and loved that, but um, worked uh, on a presidential campaign. And then really, you know, we ended up, you know, my the candidate I was working, you know, to help support lost. And so I was like, you know, I'm kind of done with the DC scene. It's, it is very, it's crazy how much politics is at the center of everything that goes on there. Oh, no, oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. I spent yeah. three years working in DC. Yeah. People that have not experienced that. Yeah. I mean, the entire town evolves around that. Yes. Yeah. It's the heartbeat of that town. And so yes. Yes. I had been here to Tucson to do a few fundraisers and loved it, you know, love the desert, love the mm. fact that you could drive down the freeway and see the horizon because, you know, in the East Coast, it's all like 95 is all trees. And so um, just really with without even a job, just sort of picked up and moved here. And, and really? I, yeah. Wow. Just started building a life here and, and, and fell in love with it, really. What would you do for a living when you went out there? Would you start applying for jobs or what, what were you like? OK, I guess I'll find something. <laughs> well, I worked for a nonprofit here for a little bit and then. Then this is really kind of the pivotal point in my life, which which drove me to entrepreneurship. I got picked up by a marketing firm here in town that was run by these two like awesome women. And it was the first time I was in a job where like, you know, where someone actually said, hey, you're you're super smart and good at this. Because what I what I was good at was like sort of taking numbers and turning them into messaging that worked. And so I became a lead strategist at that firm. And 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 also the other lesson I learned at that firm was that you could actually be authentic and have a good culture where people want to come to work. It was the first job where I was like, man, I love this place. Yeah, cool. But then the crash in 2008 happened and everybody knows that every marketing firm in the world got crushed. And um, 
I guess maybe four days after all the layoffs that we did, I went to the two women that own the firm. I'm like, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a company right now. And I've been having this idea and I've been percolating on it because I actually had a healthcare client. And I said, you're going to be the first investors I'm going to be, and we're going to, we're going to make this thing work. And so right there in probably what was the worst week of their lives professionally, like we started something incredible that went on to be a success. Interesting. So, okay. So that's how, all right. I want to come back and that's how PIX Health got rolling. Okay. Well, that's, that's not PIX. That was my oh, first. That's not, oh, that was your first one. Oh, that's medical referral source. Yes. Yes. Okay. 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 Uh, before we jump into that, though, all right, let me back up just a bit here. Okay, so you grew up in middle school, Washington, D.C., high school, too? Yep. Okay. Yep. And, and I and went to college about... in, in Virginia, George Mason, so all all metro D.C. Okay. Uh, folks, tell me about your parents and any siblings real quick. Yeah, let me hear about that. Yeah, so um, my mom and dad, My actually my mom passed away 11 years ago, but she worked at the Smithsonian. She was probably one of the strongest people I've ever known and, you know, ever probably will. Um, and then my dad, you know, both my parents were like very, very blue collar. Um, my dad worked at Friendly's. And so if any of your listeners are on the East Coast, they know what Friendly's is, but the West Coast doesn't. Um, and in fact, when I went to them, because I'm the oldest of three and the oldest cousin of 30 on one side and 28 on the other. So I have big Irish family. Um right. But when I went to them and said, hey, I want to go to college, my mom literally said, well, well, why? Because to their, you know, to them, it was like, well, no, you'll just you'll just get a job like we did and you'll work it. And and then so then I ended up going to school and, and had an athletic scholarship, which helped. It was a way that oh, I could. Oh, mm -hmm. oh, oh, all right. That helps. So, yeah. so, lo so loans and a scholarship. That's how you went and got through school. Well, scholarship, and then there wasn't very much left over, and I just paid it myself from my summer job. But that is how I got through school. Uh, um, so, so you were a softball player in high school, athlete. Yes, I was an athlete. And yeah, I still, I mean, I still consider myself an athlete, but I, and I still think I move the way I used to, but I 100% do not. <laughs> like, it's not the same. <laughs> uh, uh, was George Mason, is that like Division One softball? What is that? Yeah, it was Division One. It doesn't. Wow. It doesn't wow. compare to like the Arizonas and the UCLA's of the world because they play still, year round. No, but it was good. I mean, listen, it was yeah. probably one of my most like favorite experiences in life. I, I still, you know, keep up with those women on Facebook. And it was back then it wasn't the sport wasn't on ESPN. It wasn't right, the right, way right, it right. is now, you know. Um, so yeah. I'd like I'd like to say that we were pioneers, but um yeah. But what it did was it gave me a community inside of a big university and, um, you know, really mm. helped my experience. Probably shaped you in a bunch of ways, uh, for sure. I mean, you know, as a recruiting firm, uh, you know, we always, I guess maybe it's because I drive it this way with the recruiters, but I always tell them, I'm like, look, if you see a candidate that played division one sports through college, yeah. oh, oh, and by the way, worked like a part-time job on top of that and went to school. Uh, yes, I want to talk to that person because there's grit, there's determination, competitive spirit, work ethic, teamwork, coachable, people skill, all of it, all of it. <laughs> You're 100% right. Um, I was one of the kids in the athletic housing who I had to, I actually worked for the university and I would um, at night go and lock up the PE building. And, yeah. and so um, I couldn't afford just to go to school. I, I worked the entire time, even in season. And then on the summer waitress, and that's where, you know, I made some money, but. You Were know, you an, I, a resident, resident assistant RA? Were you an RA in the dorms or anything? No, no. Cause I lived primarily, like I said, I live primarily in athletic housing and it's, it's okay. different there. It's like you, there's really not RAs. You sort of, you, you report up through the structure of your team. You know, oh, like there's a team manager, et cetera. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. And uh, is your dad still alive today? Yes. Yes, he is. And he just moved uh, here, like um, oh. retired and, and came here. Um, I really hope my dad doesn't listen to this, but he is absolutely nuts. I mean, he is just one of those people. He tells the story better than anyone in the world. But, you know, he grew up kind of in Boston. He's in mm -hmm. his 
70s and he still wears man bling i'm like dad like you know like, like the gold chain might have worked when you were 18 but it's not working now so that's pretty cool oh my gosh we'll have to add in a photo of that i got a photo of that i'll somewhere. send you a photo we that, call him greggy j we'll send you a nice. greggy j photo <laughs> Uh, has he got a girlfriend as you, as you 11 years ago your mom passed 11 years ago is he dating around what's he doing <laughs> well they uh they they were divorced before my mom passed oh, okay. but um yeah he has a wife and and oh, she's great and um you know okay. i don't know that i call her like a stepmom because i was yeah. totally an adult but she is she's a lovely human and very good for my dad so okay. we were happy to have them move out here um, That's nice. Okay. Well, very good. All right. Yeah, and because what, after after my mom died, my brother and my sister moved off the East Coast and came to Tucson, and we all live within eleven miles of one another. Everybody, everybody, everybody. everybody. Wow. All right. How about that? They all followed Cindy out. That's nice. Yeah. So we have a good life. It's a nice life, you know. I mean, Tucson's a cool little town. I. What percentage of the town uh, operates off tourism? Like eighty percent. I don't, I don't know. You know, it, it, frankly, when I was in the marketing space in the 2000, you know, five, six, seven, eight era, you, you yeah. were, you were right. They, it, mar, it, tourism was the, yeah. but yes. they're really, the university has done a very good strategic job of building like a tech community here. There's a lot more entrepreneurship, particularly in Phoenix. So okay. there's more angel money being, you know, um, I wouldn't say that Arizona is known for VCPE, uh, kind of, but, but as far as angels go, a lot of them retire here. And so it gives early stage startups a really ripe opportunity. So, and with a, with a cool university in your backyard. So it's, it's really, if I had to give you a percentage, I would say the percentage is maybe like maybe 55 or 60 as compared to the 80, 85 that it used to be. Okay, very cool. Uh, last time I was out there, uh, I don't know, we, we were on a bunch of ATVs, and I remember riding dirt roads like from uh, Tombstone. We were we, we were at Tombstone, and then we rode a bunch of other places. And we went to Tombstone, went to the bars, got hammered, got back to one of the ATVs, <laughs> drove around. I'm sure you, I'm sure everybody that lives out there appreciates all the drunk people on ATVs driving around. I'm sure you guys love that. <laughs> it, it, it is a phenomenon. Um, did you do the old fashioned photo where you like put on all the guard? No, I didn't do that, but oh, okay. we, were, we were, we did. I think we stopped in every one of those bars in Tombstone. I can't remember, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a fun time. Uh, okay. So you've been there for gosh, how many years now? How long you been there? Uh, 21. Wow. 21 years. Okay. All right. And family, yourself, partners, spouses, kids, what, what's your, your, your story, if you don't mind sharing. Not at all, because it's actually a part of what why I'm here with Pix. But I have a wife, and um, she had two daughters when we met who were uh, 11 and 10. And okay. then I have a son who's 14. Um, okay. okay. So we and they all uh, live. And and how old are her daughters now? Well, we lost her oldest daughter, and and that is the story of Pix. When we get there, she she basically suffered from bipolar and had like a super, super horrible year where she was in and out of the emergency room and ended up in an inpatient facility. And when uh, I went and talked to her there, I said, I, I kind of want to understand what comes first. So we can try to get ahead of these, this, you know, this kind of episodes. Mm -hmm. And she started talking about being lonely. And at that time, this was about 2017, I'd already sold my other company, worked for them for two years, and I really wasn't doing a lot other than consulting, but I was, I started researching loneliness. And in 2017, we were the only developed country in the world that didn't treat loneliness like a diagnosable, treatable condition like depression or anxiety. And so I became very passionate about it and eventually started, you know, building a business around it. And then then a, a couple years in, she passed away. And um, so Sorry. it's very much at the heart of what we do here. You know, it's her legacy. Like, um, you know, my personal mission is that to help prevent families from having to go through what we went through and really to raise the consciousness around loneliness. Now, the pandemic helped us out a lot, you know, because every single person felt in some way, shape or form lonely. Mm. Um, but it it really is. And I don't use this 
terminology. It is the next ep epidemic for the younger generation. 14 to 24 year olds are significantly more lonely than seniors. Uh, do you blame, do you, do you blame a lot of that on social media? Uh, yes. And, and, and here's what I'll say. Social media in the early days could, did a good job of kind of uniting us. And then it became, uh, a, right, exactly. It's, it is all about, um, you know, I, I call them keyboard warriors. We all know this. I don't have to, but you can, you can really isolate people very easily with comments from folks you don't even know. Yep. So the problem is though, if you're going to solve that problem, if you're going to get really get the youth to trust you and start moving them through loneliness, you, it has to be something that they can engage with through their phone. So we need the technology, but we mm. want to stay away from the sort of, um, uh, you know, the environment that social media creates. I know. Right. Well, well, I want to talk about that more, the social media piece. How old are the children now? Uh, your son and, and she has a son left. So there's two she boys. She has a daughter. And I'm, her, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She's 26 and is in New York and doing okay. very well. Great. Um, and then my son is 14 and he'll start high school next year. Is he a rebel? Like at 14, that's right when they start pushing back a little bit. Is he... He's like straight A's. I'm in the library, or is he like I'm sneaking out at night? <laughs> um, he's straight A's on the library. In fact, this is a great story to to articulate, Grady. Um, I got a tattoo when he was like ten, and I showed him the tattoo. And his comment back to me: "This ten year old boy was mom. That is very permanent. <laughs> so that is totally his personality. Wow, you know, completely right. different than mine. <laughs> so. Wow. Okay. Okay. Does yeah? How does that match? I forgot to ask you. When you were a teenager, were you uh, in trouble, or were you at the library straight A's? Where were? How did you compare to your son? <laughs> so I did well academically, but I was I was defiant, right? Like I sort of. You know, I kind of knew that I was different, like, you know, wasn't and grew up in an Irish Catholic family, so couldn't really be myself at the time. And so I always just had a chip on my shoulder, um, which turned out to serve me well in life later on. But as a teenager, it was hard. So if you look at my family and my siblings, I was the the most naughty <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you mind me asking? Yeah. Yeah. Super old school Irish Catholic family. Do you mind me asking when you came out? uh the uh, for your with your parents can you tell me i'm curious how old you were 100 percent. i was 21 and the reason i came out when i was 21 remember back to being a cop i had a salary i owned my own house and i was standing on my own two feet and oh, so gotcha. i was worried before that that they're you know they were going to cut you off they're going to be like you're out you're out of the <laughs> i mean my mom who was a very faith-based woman and you know, she took it hard, but I will tell you, she came around very quickly. She always gave me unconditional love. And in fact, started sort of, she would write letters to the bishop about like, oh, how, oh, yeah. I guess, yeah. so she ended up in life. Cool. But um, okay. that, you know, frankly, when we, because we serve a lot of the youth population across the country in, in foster and um, Medicaid population. So folks that are living below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest reasons why kids have suicide, suicidal ideology is because they identify as LGBTQ, right? And we see that a lot. Mm. And so it's so it's so crazy that my experience in 1989 is, is the same experience, if not worse, than these kids are having. Like, we haven't made as much progress as we think we have. As you might think, yeah, as you might think. Um, all right, so Pix Health. I want to make sure we uh, let's let's get into this. It's by the way, it's P Y X, Pix Health. Pix Health. Um, and Cindy Jordan can also be found on LinkedIn as well. Um, and Pix Health, the uh, website is P Y X Health, PixHealth.com. That's um, it. Give us the uh, give us the overview, and then I'll hit you with some questions. Go for it. <laughs> all right. So I told you why we started it. Yes. Um, and we, again, I knew that there needed to be some piece of technology. You need technology for scale and, you know, essentially growth. But what I also knew, if, if you were going to treat a mental behavioral health condition for people, technology can't do it all. Um, 
I, in fact, I was recently quoted in, in, in a story on NPR as a tech entrepreneur who says, AI will not solve our mental health problems. I wouldn't it, think so. I would, I would think it would even make it worse because if, if I'm depressed and I know I'm talking to a robot, that might make me even more, more depressed. Exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're, no, you're right. I mean, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And so what we did is we built a bot but he doesn't address the diagnosis or disease state. He just sort of, he's like a friend in a coffee shop. He tells jokes and he measures sentiment. And so very quickly, we start to get an idea about how the person is feeling in that moment. And the way that I explain it, Steve, is like, if you and I were meeting for coffee and you knew I suffered from depression and we mm -hmm. sat down, the first thing you would say to me is not, hey, Cindy, how's the depression going? You'd say, how are you? How's your day going? Right. And that is what we miss in healthcare technology. It's like we go straight to the disease state instead of, you know, mm. earning some trust. Mm. So our bot is very good at getting the end user to trust them. And then we start to develop essentially a picture around how the person is doing. And when they throw the flag for being chronically lonely or they have like some kind of social determinants of health needs. So think no food, bad housing, et cetera. Because again, the majority, we we cover four and a half million people. The majority of them are on Medicaid. So under the poverty line. Um, okay. So the, then my humans get involved and I have a whole call center of folks all across the country, about 170 of them. And they're nice. called Andy. And it stands for Authentic nurturing, dependable, your friend, Andy. That's why it's called Andy. Okay. I see. Yeah. And All they right. are licensed peer support. They're overseen by a clinician and they get on the phone and provide what I call intentional companionship. They're not just saying, Hey, how are you? We have a program that we move people through so they can get out of that chronic acute phase that frankly, killed my daughter and move into more of a self-management. Maybe they get into behavioral health, teletherapy or something. But the reason that PICS solves this important need, not just around loneliness, is that we have a significant shortage of mental health providers. And so there has to be a, a stopgap. And what a Andy serves is that stopgap. And they, um, it's, we make over a thousand calls a day. And really? yeah, I can only think about the impact that we're having every single day. And so it's a super motivating to get up and go to work. And the call when, when they find, when the, uh, patient, I guess, um, but you call them patients, do you call, what do you we call them? Members, 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 sorry, sorry. When the members get through to the call center, that call center person then develops a lasting relationship and then that's the same call center person I call back or do I get somebody new every time? Is there a relationship built there? Yes. So another reason to employ Andes and not use volunteers, there's a lot of companies that'll like volunteer a phone line is because I can, can Andy comes to work every day. They're, they never, they always show up and you, and yes, we, when you are working the program through PICS, you have the same Andy. Now, sometimes you might pick up the phone and call into our call center and maybe Andy's your off. Andy isn't there, but that's yeah. a one-off thing. You, we, we try to make sure as you, this, this is what's interesting. For my adult population that we serve, they make an average of three Andy calls. For my youth population that I serve, think 14 to 24, they make an average of 17 Andy calls. Before they stop? Well, sometimes they don't stop. Sometimes they'll just go more into a maintenance oh, mode. <clears throat> sometimes they'll leave and come back. That's you know, our goal isn't to make you stay on the platform for a year. Our goal is to help you get through, you know, whatever you're dealing with in the moment and to be here for you if you need to come back. And okay, so I like it. I like it. Are, are, are the the calls, I'm sure you group them with like, uh, uh, mental illness, loneliness, depression. I don't know how you, you probably classify them in some way. What what's the what's the largest percentage call that you get? Well, <clears throat> we don't kind of break it out like that. What we'll do oh. is we develop like a complete picture around someone, and usually it's in an acuity acuity scale, right? So 
We use evidence-based screenings. We only follow science. And what that is, evidence-based screenings are the same things they ask you in a doctor's office okay. to diagnose depression, anxiety, and loneliness. They're, they're tried and true. So we use things like that. And then we use latent data, like what time of the day were they using it? How were they responding to Pixar's jokes? And then you start to develop an idea around the user, mm. the member. And mm. so either you get ranked as low acuity, mid or high. And that that's your buckets. I see. I see. That informs how we interact. And if you're asking me what the majority of our users are, they're in high acuity. High acuity. Okay. Um it, I guess what I'm what I'm getting at, I hate to ask the same question. I'll ask, try to ask this differently. What what percentage are classified as mentally ill versus just lonely? Do you know that? I don't because okay. Okay. I mean, we don't separate the two. You know, a behavioral okay. health diagnosis is not uh, a sentence for, you know, a, a terrible life. It, it, it A behavioral health diagnosis is something that can be managed. But what mm. we find is loneliness <clears throat> tends to be a predicator for those things. So you generally, mm. like in Riley's, you'll feel lonely before you feel highly depressed or severely anxious. And so our goal is to like kind of find these folks, particularly the kids before they're like way off the deep end, like Riley was and to help mm -hmm. them, you know, avoid that. Mm. Um, I know the you mentioned she had, she was bipolar. I think you said yeah. uh, my ex-wife, my first wife was by is bipolar. And uh, it crushed our, it just crushed our relationship. I and mean, it's one of the primary reasons we didn't make it along with other stuff, but it was just so totally de debilitating. I mean, she, and she's schizophrenic now and she probably should be committed somewhere, but my grown sons, bless their hearts, take care of her. Uh, but I know, I, my, I know from personal experience that it is crushing. I mean, it, yeah. it's um, it, to, to, to have it, live with it be around somebody with it is um it's kind of hard to describe until until you go through it um and i know those i I'm, I'm assuming you get a lot of those types of phone calls that how do you you can't really fix that right you can't heal it you can't what is your is your what's your goal there i guess if somebody has bipolar let's use my ex-wife as an example if she calls you can't fix the bipolar right right what's the What's the goal to keep her from harming herself, to keep her, what's the goal? So the goal for your wife, and then I'm going to add something else to that would be to, because here is the real definition of loneliness and what it rewires in the brain. It's not the physical act of being alone. It's believing that nobody can help you and nobody understands your plight. You're, you're just alone. So our goal with your wife would be to say, Hey, we get you. Your family gets you. The best way forward is to be med adherent. Take your medicine, you know, work your program, like yes. do this. That is our goal with your wife. However, Steve, who we would likely also be treating is you because mm -hmm. caregivers are one of the most lonely populations, right? No Great point. Did, Great point. Does anyone understand what Steve went through in that marriage other than Steve? Probably not. And Great so point. talk about feeling alone, you know, mm -hmm. so- we wouldn't just help your wife. We would help your sons. We would help you. And what we would do for her is try to, again, like it, it is literally a, 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 a chemical brain chemical thing. We would try to move that for her to say, you are not alone. People do understand you can manage this. We're here. Your family's here. That that's the goal. That you just touched the nerve right there because it's interesting. I was just having dinner. Uh, my current beautiful wife, Kim, and I were just having uh, dinner with our youngest son, Spencer. He's 28. And I asked, we, you know, routinely, I'll say, how's your mom doing? Because I know they're taking care of her. And uh, he said something like something to the effect of dad. He goes, you just don't. He goes, you don't understand like how like messed up I still am from that whole childhood dealing with her and how it still affects me. Right. And yeah, so there yeah. you go. There, there you go. Spencer. Said, could, you, uh, you don't understand. Yeah. yeah. He's like, nobody you know, understands. Right. Nobody understands what mom put me through. And I'm like, and I, yeah, he's right. You know? Uh, wow. Great. And, great and to point. use, to use your son as an example, and I'm not saying he would use it, but 
it probably would be easier for him to confide in someone and really express his what he's feeling and how hard yep. it is. Yep. That is not you. This and probably oh no doubt about it no doubt that's yes, why I Andy told. works. Yeah, that's a wow, great example. Okay, very good. Uh, you said how many people you got? Hundred? How many uh, call center we folks? Have, we have about a hundred, I think, in like the actual Andy call center folks, like maybe a hundred and thirty. There's about a hundred and eighty on staff total, which includes you know uh, all the other functions. Um, okay. We okay. sell to health insurance payers. So we, we, my goal would be that PICS be provided to anybody who wants to use it and their health plan pays for it because the um, health plan has an incentive to do it because what it does is it lowers healthcare costs. Cause when people are chronically lonely, they utilize differently. Like they go to the yeah. ED when they don't need to, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the emergency room. So and they, I, and they, har and they harm their bodies because they drink more, they take more drugs, they all, all of it, all of all it. Of it. Um, uh, so the, yeah, talk to me about your business model there. Uh, tell me uh, as much as you can share. I know it's a private company. So yeah. What's the model? How do you survive and make money? Are, are you, is, are the insurance companies, your customers, are you charging the users? Can you walk us through the business model? Yeah. So we, all we do is charge insurance companies. Um, okay. because this was my second company, I learned lessons from my first one. And one of them was to really get to data outcomes as fast as you can. So the first client I signed a health insurance plan here in Arizona, I contractually obligated them to conduct an independent case study that had to be statistically valid about the efficacy of our intervention. Mm. And that changed the trajectory of the company because it came back very good. And, and nice. now we were able to go to the market with like defendable data. And mm. so that, that is, so I go to health plans, I show them the data. Now I have 75 health plans instead of one, and we're in almost every state. And so I say, okay, guys, th this is what you can expect, not only to save, but you can see improved outcomes. Remember I talked about medication with your wife. One of the things we do very well is get people back on their med adherence, particularly for chronic disease like yes. diabetes yes. and yes. for psychotropics for behavioral health conditions. And so that's what we want. We want people, you know, in a, in a, so that's how I sell. I do not pass the cost back onto the user. Um, it's, it's really just about the payer. I love that. Um, do you have people like, like United Healthcare, Kaiser, like what, who, who do you have on this? So again, most of the business in Medicaid and Medicare, and I pretty much have a contract with every national payer, uh, not Kaiser, but United, Centene, um, you know, we're uh, Aetna, Anthem, like they're all clients. Very good. And, all right. And then the, do they take the response? Who's responsible for alerting their customers about your service? Do they say, hey, by the way, you, we got this over here, Pix Health along with your own marketing, how, how do you, how do you, how do you make sure, like, for example, I just signed up for, we, my wife and I just had to switch insurances. We signed up for Kaiser. How would I even know that Pix Health is there if you had Kaiser? Like, how would I know? So your health plan can and does market it. Um, okay. But we also do direct outbound to people. So okay. we would, okay. we would, um, we basically can take a population because we have an algorithm and we can run a population and we can just just based on the things that we know about finding chronically lonely people. And we can find people who are potentially lonely and we'll reach out to them directly and say, hey, not we don't say, hey, are you lonely? You want to use this? What we do is say, hey, look, you know, we're a service provided by your health plan and we know everybody just needs a little help along the way. And then our conversion rates are very, very high. Oh, um, I oh, I totally believe they are. I'm shocked that you're not a lot. How long have you been in business? Five years. Okay, I'm shocked that you're not way more, way bigger. Because I would think 300. What is it? 360 million people in the U.S. I don't know what the current stat is, but damn, I bet 100 million of them are lonely. I mean, seriously. Well, it's interesting you say that because this year in 23, we will move into the commercial space. Like we'll get out, uh, not out but we'll go beyond Medicaid and Medicare. I think, I think what we did well, 
and this would be some like advice I have for entrepreneurs is like okay. we stayed in our lane very, very good job. You and, strike me, you strike me as a very detailed, operationally driven, keep the train right. on time person. We <laughs> did that. And we just kept achieving and learning, achieving and learning, hitting our numbers, growing faster, growing faster. And now we're at the point, and you know, we'll we'll probably take a partner this year, like a you know, a okay. financial partner, where we're ready to go to the broader market. And, yeah, when Whether you say commercial, what do you mean by that? When you say enter the commercial, what do you mean? Like direct to the consumer type type business? What do you mean? Well, no, I still really want payers as a part of this, but okay. maybe think about it this way. Think about self-insured employers, which which are many, many in the country, meaning uh, they put the bills for all of their employees. Imagine if we were offered not only as a benefit to the employees, but to the employees' dependents, those youth uh, kids that we were talking uh, about. I so see. you do that. You're still going through the payers, but you're getting into a, a broader target market. I see. Okay. Yeah. Very good. I, I like that idea. You haven't taken on any cash so far. Uh, yeah, I did raise to, to get the uh, mostly off of angels to get the business to where it is today, but for, for where my sales is and how much I've raised is, is I've raised very little to get to where I am. Can you, can you, do you want to share any number? Can you tell us how much you've raised or where you're at in revenue? Do you want to share anything? I, I can tell you that it is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's healthy. Um, and, and we we're, we're really in a very good place to start to look at a private equity partner. Okay. So you're not burning, you're not in the growth burn cash phase. Did you actually turn a profit last year? I did not turn a profit last year, but I will turn a profit this year. Are you paying yourself? Are you paying uh, yourself? Are you yeah, paying yourself? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, listen, this is, this is another thing I, I believe. I, I did self fund the business with a couple other people who are friends yeah. and family, yeah. for a couple years, but okay. that's not sustainable, right? Like no, everybody can't do should it have a paycheck, they should mm -hmm. have benefits, mm -hmm. they should be able to take care of their families. It's also another reason why our turnover rate is so low. When you talk about the Andes, those folks do not have access to jobs like I give them, full benefits, bonuses, um, every other Friday off, I have a full-time employed therapist just for the Andes. Oh, and so, wow. Yeah. So right. I believe in a good work environment. Um, the oh, only cool. reason that we we grew we grew a uh, hundred and sixty percent last year and two hundred and fifty the year before. And so Sweet. when you grow Sweet. like that, you have to spend ahead. That's why we're not um, you know cash flow okay. positive by design. Understood. But uh, but you've had enough money in the bank to survive, obviously, and you're still and you're paying yourself. Great point. I, I want to pause right there about you know this whole. Uh, I don't know. Attractive is not the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? This whole uh, thing where, where entrepreneurs don't pay themselves. And that's a sign of how awesome you are, how much you care about the business. <laughs> you know, 12 or 24 months because you had some savings built up, right. or maybe you have a spouse or a partner that works to help bring money in. If you want to, you know, if you want to sacrifice for a year or two and you got some things to be able to do that, I think that's okay. And I did the same thing with Ryder Flex, you know, my, First year at Rider Flex, we started a recruiting firm. I think I paid myself like 30 grand. I still remember right. my wife was my wife was like, um, yeah, I know you're having fun building this and everything, but is this like how much longer are we gonna do this? Exactly. <laughs> what, what was gonna be my point? Oh, my my point was yes, it just you can't do that forever. It's not sustainable because you won't feel good about yourself. Your partner or your spouse will start to get irritated. I mean, you know, you you gotta eventually pay yourself. And if you can't, it, it my advice would be for any entrepreneur listening, if you're not paying yourself after 24 months, you might be, you might, you might need to reevaluate what, you, what you're doing. <laughs> Plus, Steve, I mean, here's the thing too. And, and you, and the mentality is shifting, but you said it yourself. First year I started my company, you had a wife, you probably yeah. had kids. If yeah. we, if we believe that all entrepreneurs shouldn't get paid until the payday comes in, then we're limiting who can actually be an entrepreneur. Bingo. <laughs> when I started my first company, my kid was one years old. I had a mortgage. Like there, it wasn't an option not to collect a paycheck. And right. so if it can only be you graduated from an Ivy League university and you can live in your parents' basement, <laughs> then we are we are going to significantly cut off the innovation that that could come out of, you know, folks like me and you with right. life experience matters. 
Great stuff. Oh, beautiful, Cindy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If only trust fund babies can start start companies. It's like, come on, man. You know? Oh, yeah, great point. Um, I want to, okay, so the company's growing rapidly. Congratulations. Uh, uh, your co-founder's on the video. I saw the the, the video of you and her talking, yeah. uh, which is great. It's on the website. I love the website. I like the, the YouTube clips that are in there. Uh, what's your wife's name? I'm sorry. What's your wife's name? Annie. Yeah, Annie. Uh, she's the one in the video with you, right? Yeah. One of the yep. videos. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the website. Love your your personality, your style, hers too, and just the way it feels. It 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 feels good. It feels authentic. It feels real. I, I'm trying to think of the right word. I, I, it just feels good when you look at the brand and you you start to look at it and you look at it, come on. Let me watch a couple of videos. Let me read this. Let me read that. Let me check. It feels good. It, it feels good. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't know. So much of the. So much of the. I feel like I'm jaded by the pharmaceutical companies and the fake bullshit commercials I see on TV and all this stuff. And, you know, I like what I'm, I like what I felt when I looked at your stuff. So well, Steve, I mean, you're not, you're not alone. I mean, and I talk about this all the time. I always say that PIX has a heartbeat and that's beyond me. It be has really is a company with a heartbeat, but here, here's why it works. If you're going to sell anything into healthcare, you've got to follow the money, but you don't have to do that in in a in a um it, in sort of a dirty way, if you will. You know, so what I've right. learned is yes, we provide return to our partners, but we're doing it by doing good for the world. Which I and love. The two, the two can live together. And um, you know, nice. it and also the people that work in healthcare. So while healthcare, I think itself is kind of like you know, inherently, like you said, like people are disenfranchised. Folks that choose to, you know, get into healthcare, particularly in the Medicaid and the Medicare Advantage space, they're wonderful people who are there to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, mm -hmm. all sales is human, right? And you know this running a staffing company. You don't mm -hmm. you don't get a job on your resume. You get a job if you connect with the person <laughs> that you're interviewing with, period. Thank you for summarizing every coaching moment I have with a candidate. Like <laughs> it's the human piece, man. Come on now. Yeah. The resume True. gets you the inner, the resume gets you the interview. The human connection gets you the job. Yeah. Uh, uh, and my, my resume would have gotten me no interviews. So, <laughs> I mean, I relied completely <laughs> on human connection. <laughs> uh, um, I want to ask you as we get towards the back end here, um, I want to ask you a couple of things. I want to go back to the, social media piece what do you think it's doing to the young people because you, you, you've mentioned young people the younger you're you're 14 what did you say 14 to what 14 to, to... So we consider 14 to 24 to be sort of like it, it is a youth demographic so the aarp has probably done the most comprehensive studies on loneliness across the country and okay. that is that's an age group that they look at and so you know that's we kind of just follow that bracket um you know, when you turn 18, you are legally an adult, but particularly in this generation, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not an adult, right? You have no life experience. You're kind of, you're in some kind of transition. The, the, you asked me how I would roll out into commercial. I also really think universities are an opportunity. And here's why the university system is not anywhere near equipped to handle the mental behavioral health crisis that is going on inside those communities. Mm. Their, their campus health, there's not enough providers. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't know if you saw the news, this is probably like six months ago, but basically Yale, one of the best universities in the country, had a mental health policy that literally told people, their students, if you are suffering from a mental health condition, go home, get better, and then reapply and maybe we'll let you back in. And they got hammered in the media. Like, <laughs> you know, that is not that that is not acceptable anymore. Mm -hmm. Universities are going to have to use solutions like ours that are affordable and that can help bridge the gap. But, you know, in in the in the crisis that's that's facing behavioral health. It is interesting that you mentioned, yeah, you got to use tech. They got to use their smartphone to connect with you. But I do worry. I, I just, I don't know. In the holidays, my wife and I went to Missouri uh, to see her side of the family. We rented this nice cabin and 
we had a bunch of our families that family members there and there were some teenagers there and stuff and man trying to get them to engage and put that phone down damn i mean their their head is in that yep fake world so to speak like all the time just all the time and i and i were i was like to my wife i'm like I, no wonder some of these teenagers are feeling like they do they they look on social media they see the the beautiful girl with what they think is the perfect life right and you know why can't i look like her how come i don't have as many friends as her and then somebody says something mean to them this is the whole thing and then they're involved in that and they're living in this in this meta universe i don't want, i don't want, i don't want facebook to cancel me or anything but <laughs> they're, 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 they're living in this fake universe man and i'm like come uh, and i just feel like a lot of it's being driven by social media and the and the and living on their phones i'm not an expert maybe i'm totally wrong i, I don't know no, you're 100 percent right it's documented i don't know if you saw but a couple weeks ago the seattle school district sued facebook instagram tiktok and one other on behalf of their students for creating a mental health crisis wow so, no i didn't know that i interviewed well, that be... right oh, but here yeah. here's how you solve it like I, it's the same with my kid, right? I, I'm never, I'm not going to pry that phone out of his hands. That is the world that we live in. But while he's on it and he maybe gets a bad message on TikTok or somebody, yeah. you know, gives him a thumbs down on something. If the icon right next to that is pics and you can push that button and you hey, can hey. interact with the bot or you can talk to your Andy, there you go. Mm, I like it. No, they need somebody to talk to. And you're right. They don't want to talk to the parents, right? Most 14 year olds really don't want to talk to their parents. Not right. Really. <laughs> it's I mean, your, son probably, your son probably wants to talk to you, but most 14 year olds are like, I'm not going to have this. I'm not going to no. tell dad. I'm not going to tell dad that I'm lonely. He'll think I'm a, I'm a sissy or whatever. I mean, they'll, he'll think bad of me, you know, like they want to, they don't want to, you know, you're right. They want somebody else to talk to. No, I like that. Uh, no, my kid's good. just like yours. Like you would think it would be different. And like, I'll ask him all the time and you know, he'll say, I don't, I don't understand why we always have to talk about my feelings. And I'm like, okay, like, I totally get it. Let me like ease back here a little bit, but you know, it is, it's part of just going through puberty and growing up and, you know, in that, and then compound imagine, I, I always think about my childhood. If there was social media, I don't know if I, Oh man. It. Oh, totally. I totally think about that all the time. I'm like, Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm glad we didn't have more than that i'm glad that there wasn't a device on me where my parents could like get a hold of me at any time you know? <laughs> yeah i remember when i was learning to drive and i was lost on the beltway around dc i literally had to pull over and go to a payphone to ask my yes. mom for directions right and i had to know her phone number <laughs> like there's it, it was not like it is now <laughs> no doubt uh no doubt about it do you, one more thing on the uh, AI, I want to ask you this. I'm so glad you have the human element. Thank you. I, you know how many people I've had on the podcast, you know, so many tech entrepreneurs and I love them all. They're all great people. But every time I get somebody on the podcast and they're like, yeah, I created this new tech te technology so that, so that my bot can talk to your bot and we don't even have that way. We don't have to have any conversations and we'll just have robots talking to each other and robots will do everything. And we don't have to interact with you. I'm like, you know, I was thinking, you know, that's cool. I'm happy for you because you created a tech company, but, but I really, that's not the world I want to live in. I, I don't want to live in a world where bots talk to bots. I want to live in a world where people talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I love the, I love the fact that you have a tech angle with a human element that is the most important piece of what you're doing. Like, that is so refreshing. Thank you. <laughs> well, listen, a lot of tech entrepreneurs stay away from it because they want like ridiculous margins. The truth yeah. is I call myself a tech enabled services company. That's what I am. I like and I, I still have a very healthy margin, but have a wonderful workplace that involves people. It's all about the, do, do I need to be in the 90% margin or is 70 okay? And, um, and I'm still, and I'm providing like an amazing service for people. And so cool. it's sort of like that, what you and I are talking about as far as who entrepreneurs are, like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm 51. And so I realize that I don't need to be a bazillionaire or, yeah. nor do I need to have a, you know, like 
a company that I would rather spend the money in the right place and still have a healthy company that does the right thing. I am a firm believer, and this is my second tech company, that it, it, tech just can't do it alone. End of story. It doesn't really kind of matter what the what the situation is. Totally agree. Isn't it interesting that after you turn 50, I talked to so many people, I'm 55. After you turn 50, you kind of come into this space where you're like, you know, as long as I'm making a decent amount of money and I got food, water, shelter, and hobbies and love, I mean, you know, I'm good. Like, I don't need to be a billionaire and have a yacht. Like, what? what, what I'm still going to, like, take a shower, eat dinner, and go to bed and visit with my wife just like I would in my regular house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't... <laughs> Money doesn't make you happy. It makes no. it makes things easier. It gives you access, yeah. but it doesn't make you happy. Like I always say, in in your twenties and thirties, particularly as a woman, you you go through this self doubt stuff. It, I think uh, Bernie Brown calls it imposter syndrome. Like yes. art, you know, then when you get to your forties and your fifties, you're basically like, screw it. Like I don't need anyone's approval. I am who I am. I believe. I am in who me. I am. Yeah. Like I'm going to. I'm going to actually believe in me, you know, and that was, that was what I crossed over when I got to like, you know, in my, I'm going to believe in me. I didn't start my first company until I was 39. Did that exit, did you have like a big time exit there, a small exit? What happened? It, it was relatively small and very fast. I, I only raised okay. about a million in angel money. It was hey, a great hey, company. You raised a million dollars. Yeah. That's not a small feat. I mean, come on. No, then it wasn't. Um, in fact, you, uh, a funny story is like, I almost got divorced because I would talk about that company in at every barbecue, at every family outing until I had enough money to actually launch it. But what happened was it was a, it was, um, it integrated into electronic medical records, which back then was a very huge lift. And uh -huh. so I either was going to have to take on a lot of money, which I wasn't interested in doing at the time or oh. find a strategic partner to sell it to. So we did that. We sold it to a strategic okay. partner. I worked with them for, for a couple of years. It was great. Um, and, but I okay. knew, I knew early on in picks, I knew that it was going to be, it was going to be a lot bigger. Like That's you could great. just tell from like the first, it, it was not going to go the route of that first company. PYX health, pickshealth.com, Cindy Jordan, Ex-DC cop, now a full-blown entrepreneur uh, living in Arizona on her second company. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your story.